Welcome to the Drug Futurisms Podcast, where we give you the space time to imagine different and possible drug worlds. We talk to drug policy experts, from drug users and activists to academics, and ask them the question they so rarely get to answer, what could a better future hold? Okay, Sheila. Hi. <laughs> We're very excited to have you with us. Um, you're really top of the list when Alex and I were talking about potential guests. So I'm really excited that we get to hang out with you today for a little bit. Um, let's go ahead and kick off by by having you kind of introduce yourself and tell you know tell us and tell the listeners you know who you are and what you do. Sure. So I'm Sheila. Hi, everybody. I currently work at the Drug Policy Alliance as the Deputy Director of the Department of Research and Academic Engagement. And basically what that means is that my job is to spend a lot of time keeping an eye on the research, uh, tracking research trends, and thinking about how current research um, has implications for the policy advocacy work that we do at DPA, and to help synthesize and up you know, keep my colleagues up to date about the new studies as they relate to our policy agenda, whether, you know, these are studies that we can use to strengthen and build up our arguments, or whether, you know, these are studies that we need to consider in terms of um, thinking through, you know, the implications or the ramifications for our work. Um, and before I worked at DPA, I was actually an assistant professor of social work at Long Island University in downtown Brooklyn. I coordinated our substance use counseling concentration and was able to teach, you know, uh, second year graduate social work students about how to work with people who use drugs. And I made sure to infuse, you know, a harm reduction perspective into what I was teaching them. And uh, yeah, that's, that's who I am. And, and before I decided to get my PhD, I was actually a clinical social worker. I worked in a traditional abstinence only 12 step type treatment facility. And when I grew kind of overwhelmed, but also kind of disenchanted with the approach that we were taking to working with our clients, I looked for something else and ended up uh, finding a job at a syringe service program and worked there for several years before deciding to get my PhD. And that's kind of where I say that I became a harm reductionist. So that's my story. Oh, um, and um, I uh, was listening uh uh, last night, um, to so you're on a, another drug related uh, podcast uh, recently uh, with uh, it was the, the drug science podcast with um, uh, that David Nutt hosts the rational uh, debate about uh, drugs. Uh, it was you and Alex uh, Stevens, and you know it's kind of fun to have you on here right after that because this is a slightly irrational. Uh, conversation about um, you know these these kind of like futures um, that can kind of um, come out of um, like trying to have us kind of imagine like you know these like things that might not feel like they're necessarily rational now um, but might be in another world 
Um, and I'm wondering if, um, so like recently, uh, you've also um, been doing a lot of work around like abolitionist uh, social work. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that. Yeah, sure. So, you know, I've had the privilege of, of forming some really great relationships with social workers in a variety of different spaces who have a commitment to abolitionist principles. And I've, you know, over the past year, had the privilege of getting to know them and their work and growing into my own identity. I think of myself as kind of a baby abolitionist, someone who's still growing in that area. But, you know, over the course of the year, we've been able to host uh, a series of events and talks in collaboration with Haymarket Books to really bring, you know, bring to the forefront social work in having these, com like, sometimes very uncomfortable conversations about what abolition means, especially for a profession that is so situated um, at the intersection of a lot of systems that actually do have a lot of control over people's lives and um, oftentimes are quite coercive and, you know, also um, kind of enforce carceral kind of logic and punishment and all of those kinds of things. So, you know, through those events, we were able to feature some really cutting edge, you know, thought leadership in social work, thinking through kind of these complicated and fraught relationships we had. Um, we also hosted a number of Instagram lives and some Twitter chats as well. And, you know, look forward to continuing this work in our second year of, of existence. But it's been really exciting work. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I loved um, the talk uh, with uh, Shira Hassan um, and, and kind of like blew my mind open a little bit. Um, I, 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 I'm not going to call myself an abolitionist yet um, after having read Miriam Combe. I don't think I'm there yet. Um, and so I don't want, I'm not going to claim that kind of, uh, I haven't like totally gotten the like punishment uh, element out of my like kind of thinking yet. Um, but I like I, I wonder um, uh, the ways in which like this kind of abolitionist or even like more transformative justice um, thing, what both of you think like this transformative justice thinking, um, how, how it like um, where it might find a home in drug policy or um, or how like this kind of broader conversation switch that's happened in the last year. I was kind of informing drug policy conversations. I, I think there's a lot that drug policy reform can learn from abolitionist movements. And I think that we as a movement are better for what we've come to already learn from, from this approach. I think those of us advocating for reforms to, you know, decarcerate and to remove uh, drug-related so-called offenses out of the criminal legal system. I mean, I think that, you know, these are all uh, really important steps towards um, abolishing at least the role that, and, and eliminating the role that law enforcement and the criminal legal system should have in the lives of people who use drugs. And I think that, you know, these steps are really, really important and show that advanced uh, thinking that, you know, we, we don't need to use these punitive carceral approaches to to really address the issue of drug use, uh, which is a public health issue, but also a personal autonomy and self-determination issue. Um, and I think that, you know, there's still a long ways for our movement to go. And, you know, there's a lot of people in our space who still feel that there is 
an important role for law enforcement, or at least while law enforcement in its current form still exists, you know, there's ways that we need to navigate and work with them and can sometimes form relationships and alliances um, to do the work. And then there's, you know, there's plenty of folks in our space and our movement who are questioning if at all and if ever there are appropriate moments to engage with law enforcement. And I think, you know, we're at this really important and interesting moment where people are grappling with these questions and um, there are no right and wrong answers. And I think there's space for all of us under the, you know, drug policy reform, um, you know, tent or umbrella to be able to grapple with these issues. I've seen before, Sheila, you've talked about how, um, you know, that social workers are not going to be a replacement for the police as we kind of move forward and to kind of re like you were talking about just a minute ago, kind of reconsidering, you know, our broader relationship with police and kind of this, you know, carceral environment. Uh, but that's something that we hear a lot is this idea that we need to defund the police and then just replace them with basically a team of social workers that do, you know, bring a social work perspective and lens and kind of toolkit to these situations. And I've seen before that you've talked about how that's simply not it. Can you kind of talk more about what you think, um, you know, the role is going to be for social work and related fields in kind of replacing or complementing or however you want to contextualize it, the role of the police as we see it today? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, it requires a full reimagination of the possibilities when we, and a reimagination and a willingness to think through new possibilities when we think about the role that social workers can play. Because the last thing we need and the thing that, you know, myself and others have cautioned against is, you know, okay, great. So we no longer have police responding to a mental health or a psychiatric crisis or um, even, you know, certain forms of conflict that might, you know, emerge between people. And okay, so now we have social workers coming in. And sure, yes, they have training for de-escalation, for, you know, engaging with folks. And obviously, they will not be armed. Uh, and they will use all the tools at their disposal to engage with people and to hopefully de-escalate them and help connect them to the help that they need. So, you know, all of that is really great, but it's also the next series of events that we have to think about when we think about social workers not being part of the carceral state and system, right? So say after, you know, we, we transform these systems, we offer people referrals to care and, you know, they're getting connected from these social workers, you know, we're still embodying a carceral punitive approach if there is some sort of consequence for people not following through on those uh, referrals, for instance, right? Or mm -hmm. if we report or document those interactions in ways that could impact the child custody case of the children in the care of that person who called because they were in crisis. Or if somehow our documentation or role in the, the interaction affected this person's ability to remain housed in that, in that facility because we came in and the documentation and our engagement um, then led to some sort of consequence in their housing, right? So there's, you know, as long as we're engaged in these systems and if we can imagine a way for us to get involved to help de-escalate, get people connected to services, get them help, help them, you know, manage the situations that they're in, but without these other punitive, carceral and negative and oftentimes harmful and disruptive consequences, then I think that, you know, that isn't a worthwhile goal to work towards. But if we still have child protective services functioning the way that it currently exists, 
social workers are going to continue to feel bound to that obligation, right? And so throwing them into situations where they're addressing this conflict is great. But then if, if CPS still, or, you know, child protective services or child welfare systems are still structured the same way, then we're just feeding these, these folks and these families into other systems. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I loved um, the, um, the way that you started that with like this kind of like reimagining the, uh, uh, the role of uh, social work and like that, like that, that's kind of like, you know, like, um, I think what we're trying to do, but just in a kind of a, a different kind of lens. And it, it's kind of interesting thinking about, yeah, like how do we, um, it's one of the tensions I've had with like the drug policy movement is that like, like there's often this kind of um, movement to do like these reform, like, like abolitionists call it reform reforms. Um, right, where reforms or abolitionist reforms, yeah, yeah, uh, where like the the ref, like the abolitionist reform is to like try to to not to create to make changes that like do not like give kind of more power or like th- throw kind of other people under the, the bus uh, uh, in your kind of uh, reforms of like things like corrections and policing, uh, whereas like the reform reforms, like uh, I think we see this kind of. I, I maybe you can't speak to this because uh, you've been very diplomatic when I brought up just recently, but um, uh, the um, around things like cannabis and, and psychedelics, or even when we talk about um, uh, people who uh, like we talk about the overdose crisis, we talk about fentanyl. Like we tend to have a a, a habit of wanting to um, defend people who use drugs, but not think about these kind of broader. Uh, systems around people who sell drugs and the kind of ways that we m- make those framings um, uh, and how they can kind of have these broader kind of impacts back to the carceral state. Right. And, you know, the fact that, you know, this punitive carceral logic is deeply embedded in other systems. And so, although maybe you don't get sent to jail or prison, um, yeah, you may be involuntarily committed. You may have your children taken away from you. You may be told you cannot live in that housing unit anymore. You may now be, you know, facing challenges at your employer with your job, right? So like this idea that, you know, punishment is still embedded into systems that have power over our lives and the access to the things that are most important to us. And so thinking about us as, you know, social workers, saying us as in social workers, um, you know, how we do have a gatekeeping role uh, oftentimes, and oftentimes we're also reporters or people who are now monitoring other people and making really big decisions about your life and what you, you know, what opportunities you may or may not have available to you. Um, and that's really, really a big responsibility and it can be really, really dangerous in the wrong hands. It almost feels like an extension of what the police are able to do. Like, whereas things have been, it, I feel like ostensibly it's meant to be an improvement over policing. It's really just kind of an extension of that because there may not be a law against something that is still, uh, still allows CPS to take your children away and like disrupt the family. So it's almost like a second chance, I feel for people to be policed and families broken Mm -hmm. up. And yeah, like you said, like all of these 
things that may not necessarily be illegal, but they're still tremendously disruptive. And it still kind of boils down to a policing of, uh, you know, certain people in certain neighborhoods um, for a lot of different reasons. Yeah. And so we don't, it, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. Right. And so I think when we propose, you know, social workers getting involved and, you know, being part of response teams, crisis response teams and, and those kinds of things, I think it's really important for us to think through the other policies and procedures that they should now be uh, held to. Right. And the new, you know, reporting, the new documentation, the new kind of ways in which they'll operate and connect people with services. And it requires a reevaluation of whether, you know, them now getting involved in these in, in these roles is going to perpetuate more harm or whether this is the, the moment where we can actually have them do something completely different. Do you feel like there's a lot of adoption of that within social work or is this going to be kind of a tough road to lead? I mean, I think that there is a growing will among social workers. I think there's some really, really exciting work. I mean, our our little strong but mighty uh, abolitionist group is just one of many pockets, I yeah. think, of where there are this, you know, there, there are groups of social workers coming together saying, you know, sometimes we're part of the problem and we need to start looking at that. And I do think, you know, this new generation of social work students are more aware than ever that they're coming into this very complicated and fraught role that comes with a lot of, you know, power and a lot of responsibility and that it's really up to them, you know, whether they want to be agents of control and punishment and the state or whether they want to, you know, go in the other direction where, you know, social workers were both trained to see ourselves in playing like case management and supportive roles and getting people connected to services. But, you know, there's this whole other radical branch of social work. Uh, often, you know, when we look at its roots, like in black women led social work movements historically and today of, you know, really radical organizing, radical reimagining, um, you know, really helping you know, communities make decisions for themselves, supporting mutual aid. And so I think, you know, when we reimagine where social work can go and what we can do, I think we need to follow that tradition and see how we can make communities more resilient, uplift their own native and indigenous leadership um, and build up their own strengths and supports and be that connector and that supporter rather than this you know, person who swoops in and makes all the decisions and, and, you know, is the helper, you know, is the so-called professional helper, if you will. Yeah. So kind of like, like, um, being more of a facilitator rather than like this, uh, savior, um, kind of mm -hmm. and maybe like really getting to the, like, uh, you know, like harm actually, like, you know, to the point where I, sometimes I hate hearing the phrase, um, and meet people where they're at, uh, um, it, it, you know, kind of gets thrown around a lot, um, and, um, meeting people where they're at kind of also is like meeting this history, um, you know, where it's at and kind of recognizing these already kind of existing, uh, traditions and imagining, um, possible, um, uh, kind of possible futures. Um, and I, I, I know that that's, it, 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 it's kind of like, I, I feel like it's been a lot in the last year. Um, I, I feel like I've learned kind of so much just because this, um, like kind of 
abolitionist thinking is really like blown up uh, here, even even if it's not like entirely taken up a hundred percent, like the um, the capacity to imagine to like think about it um, or to um, has like changed. Um, I think kind of drastically um, most recently. Um, I, I guess like. Um, yeah, I, I still like I, I still like wondering myself like what that means for um, drug policy re- reform and even for like kind of just like general harm reduction uh, kind of framing. Like, yeah, like how do how do we avoid how do we avoid these kind of punitive um, systems and also like you know that. Uh, these like con- even some of these like concepts around like drug like drugs um, have like like a safe supply for example have been around for like a really long time and they, they pop up kind of again and again if you you do a bit of like research like drug history you're like oh how do I tie this into uh, you know these kind of communities as well I kind of I kind of switched topics far way through there um, <laughs> I don't know Claire Claire what what, what, what do you think um. I just, I feel like this is, it's starting to get down to something really fundamental with the, with the U.S. and Canada of kind of how we imagine kind of deviant behavior and how we define and classify that. And um, I feel like I'm starting to see a little bit of a shift in regard to kind of the, the movement of cannabis legalization and the greater acceptance of it. Um, and sometimes people get kind of really excited and they'll come to me and they'll be like, oh, well, do you think that because cannabis is getting legalized around the country that we're going to see all drugs legalized soon? Uh, no, I really don't. I think that there's um, some interesting reasons for that. It probably has a lot to do with the fact that the folks kind of leading the charge and are, who are most visible in the kind of cannabis legalization scene are, are well-off white people. Um, but I think that there's still a lot of power to be had in kind of how we police others for things that, you know, don't matter to the rest of the community, like what we autonomously choose to put in our own bodies. Um, But yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's kind of a complex and hairy one for sure. Um, One kind of fun fact I learned recently is that the the Royal Canadian Mount Police, like our federal um, police that are like in Canada, like, uh, like, like there's like Toronto, Vancouver will have like their own police forces, but most of the country is covered by the RCMP. Um, and the RCMP, you know, is this kind of colonial, uh, you know, police force really meant to, you know, uh, be enforcers on like uh, indigenous lands. Uh, I learned recently that um, until like in the 1920s, the Canadian government was actually looking to like abolish the RCMP. Interesting. Um, and they didn't because the RCMP picked up all of the drug cases in the 1920s. Uh, and uh, the drug penalties started going up. And this was mainly aimed at, this is part of this moral panic around um, uh, Chinese uh, uh, migrants that like it, it's apparently a bit different than what happened in like the 1910s where we get these, like, you know, the Harrison Act and the Opium Act in Canada. Um, but like in the 1920s, all of a sudden this like um, kind of carceral logic like really like breaks through in, um, in drug policy and it reinvigorates the, the RCMP. 
um, so that they end up um, taking over all of these drug cases, which like in the 1920s goes like up from like just these kind of general fines to um, like reverse onus where you have to like prove that like you weren't trafficking in drugs. Um, uh, introduction of the lash as a penalty um, and deportation um, the lash? for uh, like the lash, mm-hmm. like like whipping mm-hmm. um, and like deportation mm-hmm. oh, God. Uh, and, and deportation. Um, and it's mostly aimed at uh, uh, Chinese migrants. There's actually like a, several American, there's quite a few Americans um, that were also uh, caught under um, uh, this law kind of by accident. Like it wasn't like that was not like the, the intended goal. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, there's kind of like, you know, there's like this moment, uh, you know, where this like, you know, kind of colonial police force is about to be abolished and like drugs and race, like the, these things are commingled here, but like the, the drugs become like kind of like the raison d'etre. Yeah. Um, Such uh, a useful they, tool. Yeah, that they both think they hated policing drug cases because they thought it was beneath them, but at the same time, uh, like it's it's kind of like well allowed them to this kind of federal level cultural state um, to kind of exist. Um, I don't know how. Like I feel like that's different in, in the U.S. I know there's kind of like we have you know slightly different histories, but that's kind of like a weird uh, like here it's, it's close. Um, and drugs kind of tie into this. Um, the reason that this, you know, violent police force still exists. It reminds me a lot of the, um, a few months ago, there is an expose of all of the challenge coins that the NYPD was giving out in their various precincts. And these are like, this is kind of an odd thing in like first responder culture. So you, you get these little like three millimeter thick coins kind of like a big heavy coin but it has like some kind of an enamel design printed into it um and they're usually meant to commemorate some kind of something like maybe you belong to a certain group or there is a special event that you went through um and there is one for the precinct that was near several methadone clinics in new york city and they had this whole zombie themed challenge coin and it was incredibly awful Um, but they went to all of this effort to commemorate and kind of mark themselves as the people that are around patients on methadone. Like it was very much like an important part of their identity, but at the same time, they, it was very clear that they really loathed the people at the same time, but they kept, you know, it was something that they held up as a reason for them needing to be there and needing more funding and needing more support um, because they were somehow protecting the community from these quote zombies and yeah it's like this this two-faced kind of thing where they need them and they rely upon them and they use them as a tool to get further along and get more money and get more recognition but at the end of the day they also deeply loathe these people that they rely upon and use as a tool seems like a consistent theme yeah (laughs) something that breaks cultural boundaries is um using these disadvantaged people as a tool to elevate self. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, you both bring up some very, you know, different, different points, right? You know, police being um, reluctant at first enforcers of the drug war, but then also, um, you know, being incentivized and praised and, 
their work in this area being highly reinforced. You know, um, at the, at, you know, at, at the early 70s when, you know, Reagan, or not Reagan, sorry, when Nixon declared the war on drugs, even in the early years of his administration and spilling over into the Reagan administration, there was a lot of ambivalence among local law enforcement to step in and now start enforcing these drug laws. They didn't really see it as being, you know, interesting or engaging work. And there was a lot of work done at the federal level to start incentivizing the enforcement of our drug laws on the streets in local and state communities. And so, you know, that was the, we can, we can like look back at, you know, um, the 1033 program, um, a program in which it basically in the efforts to fight the war on drugs, you know, police precincts could uh, basically get access to surplus military equipment if they paid the cost of shipping and they could get themselves some, you know, I'm using the fun, you know, I'm using the word fun here, but, you know, fun guns and other equipment and tanks and all kinds of surplus equipment to basically help facilitate enforce, enforcing the, the drug war on the ground. And, you know, these kinds of sweetheart deals were given as a way to ramp up the drug war on the ground by giving police what they wanted. And, you know, we can look at, you know, the laws around civil asset forfeiture is also creating this kind of perverse system to incentivize more enforcement, oftentimes so that the precincts could, you know, reap the benefits and get the financial benefits and people could get more overtime. What's and, uh, for, know, the, being, for the Canadian, uh, is there, what's, that, what's, that, what's the civil um, asset forfeiture? Sure. So, you know, in the, you know, over the course of committing a crime, right, there are a variety of things that are necessary or needed, right? So like, if you are going to be, say, a, a drug wholesaler or a distributor at some level, you need scales, you need cash, you need baggies, you need a car to get from point A to point B, you may need a stash house, you may need a variety of things to kind of be able to do your day to day work. And so civil asset forfeiture is the allowance of law enforcement to actually seize like all the means of production and things that would be seen as facilitating the drug crime or the crime uh, in order to deter future crime. And so that all of those things can be seized and then um, sold off at auction or used in different undercover operations by the law, like by law enforcement to whatever they'd like to do. So, you know, this is how some people end up losing their cars because the you know they got arrested in a car and it was suspected that you know this is their transport car or this is how some people lose their houses because you know children and family members may leave, live in the house but there might be a, a compartment in the house where you know or a closet or something where some of the money was stored or where drugs were found and now the whole house was seized and so this is you know another insidious way that the drug war not only punishes people who are drug involved, but also their families and loved ones and the people in, in their lives. Right. Um, yeah. So that's, that's kind of civil asset forfeiture. Okay. Uh, I, and I, I have one question. So my understanding is that like when Nixon kind of declared this war on drugs, um, I, I'm, uh, oh. I, I feel like it was going on longer than that, but like we'll, that we'll call it the official kind of declaration, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, like treatment was still kind of like a major um, arm of uh, 
kind of like the U.S. like oriented budget and that kind of transitions over like a couple of years. Is that is that correct? Yeah, you know, uh, one of the things that we talk about a lot when we talk about Nixon declaring the war on drugs and night and you know passing the Controlled Substances Act was yes, like we created this whole apparatus for drug enforcement and drug scheduling. But absolutely, I mean, this is like the, you know, this was actually quite a landmark piece of legislation in terms of ramping up federal funding for treatment and actually also like really revolutionized and created an infrastructure for methadone treatment in the United States in a way that didn't really exist before. And so whereas, you know, to the, you know, to the observer, you, you see all of this money being spent on treatment. Um, and, you know, an optimist can say, look at all this money being spent on treatment, and we shouldn't minimize that. But, you know, when you look at the proportionality of the expenditures, right? So, you know, a significant chunk of money clearly going towards, you know, federal allocations for treatment, which is really, really important. However, you know, it was still outshadowed by, um, by how much was actually allocated towards the enforcement apparatus, you know, both domestically and, uh, you know, internationally to a certain extent. And so, yes, I mean, I, I think that that is a part of it that we don't talk about enough. And I mean, yeah, we have to acknowledge that that was really, really important. Yeah, I know. I, I, I mean, I, I like, we don't have to hand it to Richard Nixon. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, um, it, it's kind of interesting. Um, uh, for me, because just because, like the like, we we tend to think of Canada kind of like as this like more progressive kind of place for drug policy. This is actually like a relatively recent phenomena. So, like, as of, up to like 1984, like per capita, like by population, like Canada actually had more people incarcerated for drug offenses than the United States did until Reagan kind of comes along. Um, and there's there's this kind of like big like anti like the 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 there's like a start of a treatment movement in like the 1950s and 60s, but you don't kind of, you don't see any of like that really pop up until 1960s. Like the, like uh, that's when you start getting like methadone um, access uh, in like full swing in Canada. Um, but like, like a re relatively like punitive kind of policy um, relative to the United States. I looked at a graph recently and it, it, you, you realize that like what actually happens is that the United States just like goes on this like big exponential growth curve. Um, uh, whereas like Canada, you know, stays like relatively like, like flight and actually starts to go down um, in the eighties. Um, uh, but it, it's kind of interesting from this, uh, I think from this yeah, treatment angle to kind of yeah, acknowledge that there was this kind of aspect of a coercive form of treatment. Um, like we shouldn't, uh, that's also why we don't need to hand it to Nixon. Um, but may, maybe it's kind of also helpful for pivoting into a conversation about um, what a, a world of like non-coercive treatment could look like. Um, yeah. And uh like what like what kind of conditions we would need to like, you know, like need to exist for that to happen. Yeah. Yeah. So um and it's and it's not only non-coercive, right? So what do we mean by coercive? It means, you know, uh, treatment with strings attached or treatment with the idea that if it's not completed 
successfully, and, you know, we can talk about what we define as success, it can mean some really harmful consequences. So it can mean, you know, you are allowed to go to treatment as a condition of your parole or probation. And if you do not complete the treatment, you know, so-called successfully or uh, while being in compliance, you could then get locked up again, right? You can get violated on your probation or parole and get sent back in. Um, you know, being coerced into treatment as a condition of having more visitation with your children or, or being able to get your children back. Um, it can mean, you know, completion of treatment so that you can get your job back. So, you know, when we talk about coercive treatment, you know, that's what we mean. Or involuntary treatment, really being sent to treatment against your will. Um, and, you know, we see this a lot, you know, people in the disabilities rights space have been talking about this for a really long time in terms of psychiatric involuntary commitment. And now we've also been seeing increasing uses of this for people with overdose histories who also, you know, have addictions. So, you know, I'd love to see a treatment system that did not have to be in bed with these systems. You know, I briefly in my introduction earlier talked about how I used to work in a traditional abstinence-only setting. And, you know, I, wor I worked in a setting where at any given time, 30 to 40% of my clients were what you would call coerced clients or mandated clients through probation, parole, child welfare, et cetera. And, you know, I spent a lot of time on the phone talking to parole and probation officers and child welfare workers and social service workers, reporting back on how people were doing in treatment. And, you know, we needed these referrals to stay open as an agency. You know, we needed these relationships because, you know, the vast majority of our clients didn't actually want to be there. They were only there as a condition of, you know, so, so they wouldn't have to deal with these other ramifications of not being in treatment. And, you know, our entire business model was built around maintaining and preserving these relationships with these referral sources because the happier they were with us, the more likely they were going to send their patients to us or their clients to us. And, you know, then we were more likely to have good, you know, business. But on the other hand, it, me it meant that I wasn't really beholden to my clients the way that one gets into social work or one of these other helping professions thinking, right? You know, I was trained as a social worker, imagining, you know, these therapeutic alliances, these therapeutic relationships with my clients in which we could really get to the heart of the issue. You know, we could build trust and good rapport and really explore and engage on different issues and really help people solve their own problems and, and you know, live the lives that they wanted to live. But what I discovered in working in that agency was that, you know, they knew as well as I did that if their PO called, I'd have to talk a little bit about, you know, how they're doing. If, you know, I administered a drug screen and I'll tell you, I handled a lot of urine. Didn't know that social workers could handle a lot of urine as part of their jobs, but that's what I did. I watched a lot of people pee. I, I watched a lot of pee. Um, and, you know, I oftentimes had to have some really uncomfortable conversations with my clients about the results of their drug tests and the fact that someone else had to find out about it, right? Um, and, you know, all of these things and just even the act of having to sit there with someone while they are using the toilet just to make sure it's coming out of their body and then to both stand together and dipstick, put a little dipstick into the, you know, this cup of their urine in front of everyone lined up outside of the bathroom 
and have a conversation about, you know, what lines do and do not pop up on the test results. I mean, that is, I mean, how is any of that therapeutic? Did you, do you have a conversation with them like while other people were um, there or was it like you did the tests and then like afterwards you take them to the the back? There's kind of an interesting, if it's the other case, there's an interesting disciplining kind of factor there too, if it's a public conversation. Yeah. I mean, well, the way that our, you know, we were kind of in this weird office space set up, there was just like one single stall toilet and there was like a little bit of a maze of a hallway to get to it. And like everyone would kind of just line up because it was like, you know, the day that we're going to piss test everyone, you know, you kind of just like randomly just like line everyone up and everyone's kind of in and out and you set, you know, you fill up the cup and you put it on top of the filing cabinet and there you go. You dip, dip, you know, you put the dipstick in there and, is there anything you want to tell me about what I'm about to find? <laughs> and, you know, how are you, like, how is that conducive yeah. to building a relationship, building a trust? I mean, one of the things that I'd also been taught in social work school was just, you know, like to allow for like client self-determination, you know, unconditional positive regard, all of these kinds of, you know, to have a lot of empathy, to do all these things. And then here I was in an addiction treatment setting, basically being told like, you cannot trust your clients. They're going to lie to you. You know, drug testing them is the only way to find out if they're telling the truth. It was wild. Yeah. It was wild. It went against everything I was so called, you know, I was, I was supposed to think was therapeutic and relationship building. Yeah. It's I, like ostensibly a therapeutic healing relationship, but no trust can be there. Yeah. And there's, there's something I, I want to pull out of that. One, one of, I think the things that was interesting to me was that like, um, there's kind of this funder obligation, um, in a way, like a referral obligation in order to like maintain this funding. Um, and so like, you know, what I'm kind of hearing is like, like there's this non-punitive aspect, but there's also this, like the non-punitiveness is kind of tied to like monetary stability um, in some cases for these organizations. So like, if you didn't like, you know, if, if funding, you know, wasn't contingent on, um, wasn't contingent on having these referrals and it was like actually like a voluntary treatment that was kind of open and accessible regardless of, of that, like that, that also would kind of alleviate some of the coercive kind of aspects. Right. Sure. And, you know, also like, I think we never questioned the fact that the other self-fulfilling prophecy or like this kind of bizarre feedback loop and belief systems and like thinking is that, you know, the nature of addiction, you know, and I'm saying this all with air quotes, but you know, the nature of addiction is to be secretive and manipulative and to protect your addiction at all costs. Right. And no one wants to give up their drug and no one's going to do it willingly. Right. And they're only going to do it if they hit bottom when they finally decide like enough is enough and I have to stop. Right. So the vast majority of people in, you know, active addiction in this belief system are people who do not want to stop using. And so sometimes again, you know, for their better, for their own good, they need to be forced into treatment to build that motivation to stop using because they don't know what's good for them, right? So the reason why we can't get a lot of voluntary clients 
isn't because of how we're treating them or our approach. It's just the nature of addiction that this is going to happen. Then also when they do start treatment and they, and they drop out of treatment because it's not what they want, they are, you know, they, they have enough positive drug screens that they're deemed, you know, non-compliant or not motivated and they get kicked out or, you know, administratively discharged from treatment or what have you, then it also becomes this part of this, like, well, see, they just, they aren't ready yet. They don't know what they want, but like what we're doing is right. And they have to, they have to come to us. And never in this model, is there a stop, a moment where they, you know, where we as providers were told to question, like, maybe we aren't doing enough to keep our clients. Like, what is it that they do want and how can we, you know, how can we engage with them where they're at so that we can actually attract clients to coming to us, you know? And there was never a doubt that our approach was the only way to do treatment, right? And the only way to do treatment is an abstinence orienta- like orientation monitored through frequent drug tests drug testing. Um, And this idea that it doesn't matter that you came in saying that you had a drinking habit, like you're not going to be allowed to, you know, do cocaine or smoke weed or do anything else. Like you got to give it all up. And there was no question that this is like, this is how you do treatment. And, you know, one of the things that we've learned um, looking at the national survey on drug use and health. So Alex, this is like an annual household survey conducted here in the United States by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. It's this annual uh, study. They they go to about 60,000, you know, so-called representative households across the United States. They, they stratify us by census and all those kinds of demographics to try to get a representative sample. And then they extrapolate on the population based on that. And what they find year after year when they do this household survey is that you know, 90% of people who meet criteria for a substance use disorder or an addiction did not receive treatment in the past year. And when they are asked why they didn't seek treatment, they say, because I didn't want to stop using drugs. (laughs) And we, you know, the way our treatment system is built up is like, well, that's their denial, that's their addiction speaking. And like, they'll come to us when they're ready, rather than like, maybe we should revamp our model for people who still want to use drugs, but maybe we can like engage with them on staying safe and like, you know, dealing with depression as it comes up or when they feel anxious or talking about, you know, why they binge so much or, you know, making sure that they have, you know, the services they need, um, the other supports that they need. Um, And I feel like that was like such a, frustrating other part of treatment was just that like this complete rigidity to the approach and and using and like finding this logical way you know developing this logic of like well the the whole reason that they don't want it is because that's the nature of their problem not that it has anything to do with us does that make sense yeah i guess okay let's like let's go let's, let's go back in time um, for a, a sec to a, a imagine a younger a younger Sheila um, who um, is walking into this addiction um, clinic for the first time, um, coming in with these kind of ideals that you know you got in your social work training. What does what does this like uh, treatment facility look like in um, in the world where those like ideals and like maybe some of the ideals that you have now as well. Um, are kind of um, being met. What does that like space look like? Yeah, well, the space has a kitchen. The space has showers. Uh, The space has like a hangout room that's actually cool with like maybe ping pong tables or pool tables or things that people can do. It's got a TV. 
Um, and it's open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, and there's a space for safer consumption. There's, you know, various kinds of safer consumption. And then there's rooms in the back where people can like sit down and do individual sessions or group sessions, right? Um, like the, the, the space itself didn't need to change that much. Like I'm actually picturing that, uh, the, the actual unit that we were in. And I'm just thinking of like repurposing some of that space, but also, you know, yeah, expanding and breaking down some walls and making some bigger spaces where people can congregate and hang out. You know, I think another thing that was really challenging about this agency that I worked at is that we were open from like 9 to 7 every day, 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. We were closed on the weekends, um, except for like every other Saturday where we had like a small morning session. And, you know, it was built around people who were only going to show up for groups or individual and then go home. And they were only going to show up. And um, sometimes they had to come in and do an intake and they had to come back days or weeks later until like they could actually start their group. And, you know, we didn't have drop-in services for people to even just kind of like get acclimated to the space, get to know each other, feel like this could be a place that they could come and build community. And, you know, that this is a place that's there for them, whether they want to sit in a group or not, whether they just want to socialize and have a cup of coffee or have a place to come take a shower. Um, and then like maybe think about starting individual or groups later, right? I feel like that's kind of if I could reimagine that space, like it, it's just that simple. It's like actually meeting people where they're at. Yeah, I know you don't like yeah. that, Alex. <laughs> you no, know, it's not that you don't like it. It's just that it, 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 no, it, it gets sad a lot. It does get sad a lot. It's like a meme almost, and I'm like, ah. <laughs> I feel like it's easy to well, say I mean, that and not do it. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, Sheila. Mean, or it's, yeah, or it's telling them to come hang out here. And do yeah. whatever you want. Is that a better way to say it? Yeah. No, 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 no. It's fine. It's fine. It's, it, it, like I, I, I like it though too because it's like it, it's like um, uh, it's kind of a, a development of kind of like a common space or like a, a shared um yeah. space, like a social space, rather than this um kind of individualized um space or like an like an almost antisocial uh. And it kind of takes some of the clinicalness out of it, I think, too, imagining it that way. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, folks in the in, in you know, a lot of the consumer survivor, you know, ex-patient movements, um, uh, you know, they talk about the clubhouse movement. Right. So there's a lot of uh, really great models in the clubhouse movement of, you know, people living with mental illness um, who found, you know, who created spaces for themselves where they can, you know, engage in their hobbies, they can learn a skill, they can socialize, they can, you know, have a space to be during the day. And I do think that we need more of that, right? We need more spaces to build community uh, on our own terms when we're ready. Um, and we need to know where the, where the safety net is in case we ever need somewhere to land. And currently, the way that our systems are structured is not like that. It's like, this is a business. This is a place of business. This is also a place where you will get what you need, but it's transactional. You come get what you need, and then you leave, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm.
So yeah, that's, that's kind of part of how I would envision it. And then of course, you know, the orientation being, you know, having groups that are like harm reduction groups, right? So like people can come in and talk about their current drug use and how they want to stay safe and, you know, strategies that they want to develop and maybe some groups um, like recovery readiness groups where, you know, you kind of talk about maybe some of the things that you want to work on towards your, however you want to define your recovery. And then having groups for people who do want to kind of maintain abstinence or, you know, take a break from, from their use. And so allowing people to create groups and spaces for themselves where they can self-select into where they're at. Um, Again, to say where they're at, but (laughs) like not using a single approach with everyone, because I know it is true, right? That like for some people in the early days when they do want to work towards abstinence, it can be hard to be having conversations at the same time, maybe with someone who's kind of there talking about, what they were up to this weekend. So, you know, like maybe making space in that community so that people can still have spaces where they can talk about their goals, whether their goals are different from one another and be supported in that. I feel like the vision of what, of what could be better is not necessarily more time intensive or labor intensive or even more you know, resource or like, you know, like it's not necessarily even more expensive than like the systems or the structures that we have now. It's just about finding new ways to use that space, right? Or being creative. And um, yeah, like it doesn't have to cost a lot of money. It doesn't have to require a whole lot of, you know, manpower. Um, It really is just about maximizing what you have, you know, the potential of what you can do if you have, you know, a a wing of an office space, or if you have uh, several, you know, you have a storefront or several connected storefronts, like it doesn't have to be big, huge, glamorous, um, and you can make it what you want it to be. Uh, That's the other thing, right? We're not asking for, for anything that isn't completely reasonable and attainable. I think it's an especially good point that wouldn't be any more expensive, especially when you look at the kind of funds that are being spent on things that don't work mm-hmm. especially well now. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank and you for I, bringing that up. Know, yeah. And I think, you know, the other thing too is like, I, you know, I've been really excited at what's been happening also with like, you know, mobile outreach possibilities and like the more vans that I've been hearing about popping up and just kind of, the ways that people are, are being really innovative uh, with the kinds of models that they've developed in response to COVID, but also, um, you know, with a little bit of money and thinking about like, how can we have the most impact? So I think, mm-hmm. you know, mobile programming and especially like in rural communities or in communities where there isn't a lot of public transportation or people are really kind of far apart. I think, you know, mobile outreach is really exciting. And I know another way to kind of do this, you know, with trailers or vans or, um, you know, getting, getting things on wheels. I do think also for those who have the capacity and like, you know, the access, I think maintaining like audio and, you know, telehealth and audiovisual stuff is also really helpful and accessible for some people um, for whom, you know, getting somewhere every day is going to be challenging, but they want to feel that connection. So, yeah, I think there's, there are so many possibilities for supporting mutual aid, but also, you know, help with, you know, the assistance of professionals, if that's what people want or need. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I think the possibilities are endless. Yeah. 
Um, and and what is um, uh, what 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 is like because uh, we you know we talked kind of earlier about this coercive this idea that like we you can like that treatment is like that you know you get college drugs and, like we've decriminalized them but there's still less coercive element well you still have to go to this place and like you know try and do the the treatment because we, we caught you with drugs so I, I guess I'm wondering like what um you know uh what kind of drug features are um maybe uh required to make this like this space um uh you know, like the inf- see how the infrastructure could easily be there, but also make it kind of this com- like comforting place as well. Yeah, I know. I think the the first problem is is that you're having contact with law enforcement just for the simple possession of a, a drug, right? And that that person can still force you or send you to treatment. I think like even just that still remains a challenge, right? And until we can move forward and those kinds of contacts just do not happen, <laughs> um, like that's going to remain a challenge. But yeah, I mean, I think if you're going to get connected to services or options, like there should be no strings attached and you should be allowed to like walk in, check it out. And if it's not what you want, be able to walk right back out. Right. Or to have like a menu of options or a menu of different places that you could go to figure out if that's the place that you want to be. And if, and if it's really housing that you need help with, like you shouldn't be sent to a treatment agency, but maybe you should get connected with a caseworker who can help you, you know, fill out a housing application and find a place to stay that night and help make sure you get a roof over your head first and foremost. Did I did I answer your question? I'm not sure if I I did. Um, I I think you did in that like uh, uh maybe uh bringing in like the, the the talk of like these larger uh social um I don't like the term social determinants either. I'm really picky about my language. I'm an anthropologist. I can't help it. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, these like um these other kind of structural barriers that um you know that we think that treatment can kind of uh, alleviate like things like housing um also like sometimes maybe it's just like uh the need to access a job um you know might be like the the thing that like i i, I don't i'm not gonna go into too much detail because this is like a you know friend's kind of story it's not mine to share but, you know, like I had someone was telling me about like their need to like that they really needed a job in order to, you know, kind of structure out their life. Um, and like maybe that's like the thing that is like, you know, kind of the the meaningful thing they need. Maybe the meaningful thing you need is housing. Maybe the thing you need is, yeah, you, you do need, you know, help with treatment or you need a safe supply of drugs that's stabilized. Um, I mean, in my my ideal kind of future, like these drugs would be legal. So like that, that question maybe wouldn't come into play um, as yeah. much because like the, the drugs you'd be getting would be, you know, like you wouldn't be worrying if like, you know, your heroin had fentanyl, your fentanyl had benzos, your benzos had carfentanil, uh, you know, or your, your, your Coke had meth or, you know, whatever. Um, and I, or your, LSD was tw- 25i NBOME, which I'm not going to go into detail of, but it's a very different psychedelic drug um, and dangerous. Um, but 
I like I feel like that's kind of like you know uh that, that's like another aspect of it too right there there are kind of all these different needs that um uh people have to kind of be met where like maybe treatment wouldn't be the place that they would go if um other kind of conditions in their life were met is that's kind of what I got from what you're saying yeah. And I mean, I think the other thing is, is like, if you've got drugs on you and you have contact with law enforcement, they should like get you to a safer consumption space <laughs> so that you're not, you know, the, you know, that you're making sure that you're using safe equipment and taking your time and can see and take care of what you're doing properly or like help you get somewhere so that that happens. Right. Like if you've got drugs on you at that exact moment, chances are you probably just acquired them and are about to use them. Like uh, maybe having a conversation about treatment when someone just cops drugs is not where they're sorry to come back to it, but it's not where they're at. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I didn't mean to problematize this, uh, this, this term. <laughs> no, I know what you mean. Like, because so many of our systems are like, they don't care. So much of how we enforce our drug laws or treat people who use drugs or talk about drug use has no, like, does not take where the person's, like, what their goals are, what their priorities are into consideration at all. It's like the last thing that anyone wants to know about is what the person who uses drugs wants and where they're at, like, what their goals are, what's going on in their lives right now. But instead, all of our responses are around, like, you know, why did you do that? Do you understand the consequences? Well, this is what's going to happen now. And this is what I need you to do. And this is what our rules are. And this is unacceptable. And, you know, da, 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 you know, like, so I do think that part of the reason why what we do is so revolutionary is because first and foremost, we're like, is this what you want? Is this where you're at? <laughs> am I with you there? Or am I where I want you to be? Yeah. Am I like so busy? trying to impose what I think you need to be doing, what you should have done differently. Why did you do that thing before? Like, can't you see what this is doing to you? Like, this is not the logical response, yada, 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 right? Like, I think, and I think that that's what's so revolutionary about who we are and how we approach the work is because first and foremost, we're like, is this what you want? And no one ever asks that. Yeah. That was one of the things that I found especially difficult to contend with in the hospital space was seeing how like the needs of people who use drugs that were in as patients, really the only focus was on how that patient was inconveniencing like the staff and the systems. Like, I need you to hurry up and pee. I need you to like hurry up and get dressed because we need you to go. Um like it's just it's considered like so odd and radical to think past the point of what like the hospital needs from the patient versus vice versa and we're a lot better mm -hmm. about doing that for other kinds of patients if you have like a cancer patient <laughs> then things start shifting we start thinking of creative ways to making them especially comfortable but we can't muster the same for patients who use drugs or patients who are unhoused or psychiatric patients kind of to go back to your earlier point, like it's not just people who use drugs. There are other people who kind of are experience the same context within hospitals, which can become like ad hoc carceral spaces. 
So sorry, I don't want to drag us down hospital yeah, lane. <laughs> yeah. No, that's so wonderful. Keep going. Yeah, yeah, no, it's just, it's, I completely agree with you. And like just now, just a moment ago, I see this tweet from my colleagues here at Texas Harm Reduction Alliance about how one of our um, uh, camps for unhoused folks here in Austin just got cleaned out. And when I say cleaned out, mm-hmm. I mean that in air quotes, they ran everyone away. Mm-hmm. And so like force people out. (laughs) Oh yeah, no, absolutely. And like rounded up their things and threw them out. And it's this kind of thing where they're like, we're going to spend an hour here. If you haven't packed up and moved your things in an hour, we're just grabbing it and throwing it in this dumpster. And that's the last you're going to see of it. And I just can't tell you how many times I've like found someone and I'm like, this is great. And they need maybe like wound care that I'm going to check on over a course of a few weeks. And then their camp gets raided a week later throws away everything we gave them and then they get moved to, they get moved maybe far away from the clinic that we had established them at for like to check in and get ongoing care. And it's just like, well, you don't actually give a shit. Like let's kind of call that what it is. Like if you refuse to kind of do what this person needs to become better or healthier or happier or whatever we're trying to give this person, but at the same time, you're not even willing to do basic things like let them stay where they want to stay so that they can, can continue with the networks that we've established. And you don't actually care about their well-being. Yeah. Or if or you do, it's a lower priority to you having to see them. Or even it's just like is, viable housing is like a, a, a thing. And yeah. Um, uh, like, I, yeah, like one of the, the, the challenges is that it's like some of these needs are like so basically it's like this like maslow's like hierarchy of needs like thing that you if you take like an intro to psych class like like these things that are so basic that like you know they're codified in this weird pyramid thing that every psych student learns from like you know this 1950s orientation of psychology uh you know like food water like housing uh Uh (laughs) um you know these like comfort and security yeah it's so hard to uh kind of think of what um uh you know could be done otherwise and why meet people where they're at is maybe sometimes an overset statement but it's also it it because it's so fundamental to um it's like the very first thing that's not being done and like that's like the jumping off point um to go into these other kind of um places kind of with people not you know yeah uh, enforcing them but by actually you know with together <laughs> i know what you uh, mean. i feel like the problem with me to meet people where they're at is that so many people use that to describe like an naloxone distribution program and they're like yes we're meeting people where they're at we're done now <laughs> i'm like go say more say more about that keep going keep going you can do yeah. more than that sorry yeah no um I think it's a it's a kind of a good way of framing it and thinking of it. You just have to. I I feel like people really lack in create creativity, um, and also lack in a willingness to push themselves to get there. And I think it keeps coming back to. I think it kind of keeps betraying their true feelings about these populations that they kind of ostensibly are trying to help. Like if you don't actually care enough to listen. And you don't actually care enough to think creatively about what is very obviously not working, then do you actually care about this person? 
And it goes back to, to, you know, this idea of the perfect victim and mm-hmm. the idea of the deserving poor mm-hmm. and how so many of our systems and structures are built around this ideal patient, this ideal, you know, and all of this in air quotes, but like compliant, open, honest forthcoming, descriptive, you know, like able to articulate in the words that we understand what their symptoms are, what they're doing, what their routines are, what they ate, how they take their medications, you know, they're able to accurately report, um, you know, you think of all the language used in charts um, and and the ways that we we describe, um, you know, patients that are the ideal patient, right? who just happens to be sick or like happens to, you know, have this condition, but through no fault of their own and, you know, the, the perfect victim, you know, and, and, and the perfect patient yeah. uh, who was completely blameless for what happened to them. And, you know, that we have such limited compassion sometimes as helpers for people seen in any way culpable or responsible for, their problems or who like aren't grateful enough or aren't thankful enough or aren't, you know, humble enough in how they approach us or how they, you know, how they feel about what we're doing for them. You should be thankful that I'm talking to you. You should be thankful that we're here treating you today. And now you want more, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Um, So I, I, I'm starting to wear a little bit um, and I know we have another call in like an hour. Um, but uh, Sheila, I'm wondering if like to wrap up maybe um, a bit, um, if you could like describe to us, uh, you know, uh, going kind of like with the, the show and, and and I, I think maybe one of the challenges here with like describing this kind of future is that there is kind of this like kind of common element to it. And what, what I mean by that is like uh, it rec- rec- in, in trying to imagine like a future of treatment or a tr- treatment facility, like it really does need to be done kind of with people. And so it's kind of hard to do that kind of imagining, you know, like between the three, the three of us, so, you know, you can kind of get these general ideas, but like kind of like sum up kind of maybe like, in, you know, like what your kind of like dr- dreams are for this, like, you know, this, this kind of this drug future, like what, like what would be the kind of ideals? Yeah. I mean, I think what I envision is a world in which people can give and receive help in ways that are most um, tailored to their needs, right? And tailored to kind of what they're looking for in that moment. And that that can look like mutual aid. It can look like the support of professionals or, you know, credentialed people. It can look like people with past experience who have now um, moved on to other things. And I think that this kind of aid and support needs to come and be given in situations and in settings that are comfortable, that are welcoming, that are accessible to people, whether it's 
coming to them or someplace that's easy for them to get access to, but it's also available at the times when they need it, right? You know, the traditional treatment models that we have right now are very much nine to five, Monday through Friday, right? So envisioning a world in which people can get and give the support that they that they want and that they need um, in spaces that are accessible, that are uh, comfortable, that, um, you know, include uh, people who understand them and, and, and are willing to accept them and embrace them and make them feel like they're part of community um, and places that also can help them grow and learn new things and take care of their basic and essential needs. Um, and that's, that's what I envision. And so in some ways, it, it does fall under the umbrella of what we've sort of, you know, professionalized as treatment. But I think also the elements of mutual aid and community and support should be should be part of that and you know professionals and so-called you know um yeah credentialed folks can play a role but they don't need to be playing the leading role um and i guess that's kind of what i what i envision thank you for listening to the drug features podcast more information and resources about this episode are in our show notes if you want to help us imagine a different future you can support us at patreon.com drugfuturisms or give us a good rating on iTunes, or share the podcast with a friend. After all, we can only imagine the future together. This podcast is made by Claire Zagorski and Alex Betzos. Our editor is Marcel Rambo. The art was made by Brooke Payne. And our music by Jake Goodison. And remember, another drug world is possible.